0: Tonight, we are studying chapter 11. So if you haven't already, you can turn there. And before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, now as we sit before the open pages of your written word, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be present to teach each and every one of us that which he would have us learn tonight. And that may be something new for each of us, But that's what the Holy Spirit can do. And so I pray that you would use my voice and the study that I've done and the preparation that I've made, But you would use it for your glory. You would use it for your purposes tonight. Holy Spirit, teach us. Let us see Jesus more clearly. Let us hear what he has to say. uh, And let us understand tonight how we can apply what we read to our own lives. It happened thousands of years ago, but it's still relevant for today and for us today. So help us to apply it correctly. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, you have your hand out there in front of you. Let's read the chapter summary. Acts chapter 11 describes Peter's defense of his visit to Cornelius' house in uh, Caesarea and his defense of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place during their meeting. Uh, The chapter also discusses the development of the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch became the center for the Gentile church. And uh, from there, it spread to other Gentile cities and nations. And in this chapter, at the end, we actually get a glimpse of what the spiritual gift of prophecy looked like in the early church. So we get this little glimpse of what uh, the spirit or we get a glimpse of the spiritual gifts in operation in the early church here at the end of the chapter. So that'll be exciting for us to look at as well, especially considering our Sunday morning series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we'll get a chance to see it live and in action tonight. So starting from verse 1 to 3, let's read together from the text. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party circumcised him, saying, oh sorry, criticized him, now, that was done years ago, for Peter anyway. Um, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. So we we talked about how we're studying through the book of Acts because we want to relive it. We've talked about how reliving the book of Acts will bring persecution from the world, but it will also bring criticism from within the church. So when we want to live by the Spirit, when we want to relive this book as it is written, we're going to get it from all sides. We're going to get it from outside and from inside. And here, Peter, having returned from his missionary journey to Caesarea to preach to Cornelius and his household, having returned, he faces criticism. Uh, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, for us, that sounds pretty harmless, but that was a really, really big deal in the first century uh, and a really big deal for anyone who was born and raised in Judaism. Peter, if you recall, bragged a few chapters earlier when the Lord dropped that sheet in front of him Uh, And said, rise, kill, and eat. Peter said something to the effect of, certainly not, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is unclean. And I think back in um, chapter 10, when Peter shows up to Cornelius' house, it's one of the first things that he says to Cornelius. Uh, Yeah, where is it? Verse 14, I think, of chapter 10. No, sorry, that's his vision. Verse 14 of chapter 10, when Peter has that vision, he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then the voice comes back and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. So Peter had an argument with God about eating these, uh, what he considered to be unclean things, what the law called unclean things, so then Peter shows up at Cornelius' house just a few verses later. And one of the first things that uh, Peter tells Cornelius is about this vision. Almost as an insult to say, listen, I don't, I don't usually do this. I don't usually show up at Gentile houses. I don't usually eat with them, but, you know, the Holy Spirit sent me here, so I guess I had to obey. So this is a big criticism that awaits Peter on his return home from Caesarea. I'm sure he was not expecting it. Or maybe he was. But I'm sure that it was disappointing for him to come home to criticism because he was so excited that the the Gentiles received salvation and that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. Now, he wasn't excited right away. It took him a minute to clue in. But when he did, he was very excited about it. Then he shows up back home to criticism. You uh, entered the house of a Gentile and you ate with them. The Gentiles were receiving the word of God, but it did not seem to bring any joy to the church in Jerusalem. They demanded An explanation of Peter. They really thought he was sinning. They thought he was out of line. And so they demand an explanation. And so for the next several verses, Peter explains himself. Let's read, starting at verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals, beasts of prey and reptiles, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.' But I said, "'By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth.' Verse 9, But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house where I was, uh, and they were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told to me, Go with them. Make no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. So remember... uh, people who were Christians from Jerusalem, people of the circumcision, went with Peter to uh, witness what happened at Cornelius' house. These six brothers accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Let's stop there for a second. Just remember who Cornelius was. Cornelius was a part of the Italian regiment. He was a Roman centurion. Or sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah. He was a part of the Italian regiment. A centurion, yes. The Italian cohort. A devout man. This is chapter 10, verse 1. Who feared God with all his household and gave alms. So, Cornelius was doing some things that were godly. Cornelius was sympathetic towards Judaism. He believed in the God of Israel. Uh, But he wasn't saved. And we talked a few weeks ago about how you can do a lot of good things, godly things. You can even believe in the right God and not be saved. If you haven't heard the message, if you haven't heard the gospel and responded to the gospel, then you're not saved yet. You might be a nominal Christian, as in a Christian in name only, but unless you've heard the message and responded to the message, you can't be saved. And so that's what this angel shows up to tell this relatively righteous man, this good guy, this... Uh, Cornelius, this angel shows up and says, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, and he will tell you a message, and by that message you will be saved, you and your household. Reminds me of Romans chapter 1, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So this Gentile calls for one of these Jews to whom salvation came first, come and preach the gospel to me. Verse 15, And as I began to speak, Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life pretty amazing. They were upset at first. Then they heard a compelling story, a true story. And they believed, their hearts were softened. And they believed that God was going to grant repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles as well. And I'm, I'm glad he did because I'm a beneficiary of that. So are you. Let's go back to Well, let's read the handout, and then we're going to go back to verse 16 and 17. Just to go over a couple things. But the handout says that Peter reviews his conduct in detail with the apostles in Jerusalem. He is half apologetic, as you can see in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them, who was I to stand in the way? He had not envisioned Gentiles in the church. We talked about this before. The Jewish Christians did not envision that this was going to extend to the Gentiles. And he explains that he moved only at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The church in Jerusalem then accepts the fact that the Gentiles are to be incorporated into the body of believers with them. As you can see in verse 18, when they said these things, they fell silent. Then they glorified God and said, all right, God must be including the Gentiles too. Now, it's the Apostle Paul that really picks up on this in other parts of the New Testament when he talks about predestination and how God always intended for the Jew and the Gentile to be a part of his family to be a part of the bride of Christ. And we've talked at length about that in the past. We won't go over it again here now, but suffice it to say that a real good doctrine of predestination is not that God preselects some to be saved and some to be damned, but that God has predetermined that absolutely everyone can be saved through the sufficient and efficient work of Christ on the cross. All they must do to be saved is confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. If they do those things truly, they will be saved. And so that's what's happening here. It's playing out in real time. They went to Jerusalem. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go to Jerusalem, wait And then in Acts 1 8, or no, in Matthew 28, he tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. In Acts 1 8, he tells them to go into Jerusalem and wait to receive power, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is playing out in real time. It's going now to the ends of the earth, and it's going into the Gentile areas of the earth. Remember, I said this a few times during this study. The Gospels are all about where in the world Jesus is. The book of Acts is all about where in the world the Gospel is going. And here we can see that it's going to the ends of the earth, and it's going to Gentiles. This um, outpouring at Cornelius' house is often referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. So in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in the upper room with the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire, uh, that was the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, and it was uh, in Jerusalem, and it was two uh, Jewish people. Here now in Acts chapter 11, we have what we could call the Gentile Pentecost, and this Holy Spirit falling on them and baptizing them is the sign that God is also going to save Gentiles. It's the sign to the apostles and to the Jewish people that God is not just saving Jews, but he's saving Gentiles as well. That's why uh, Peter says here in verse 15, I began to speak, and as soon as I began to speak, the Spirit fell on them, just like it did to us in the beginning, Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when they heard the word, you will be baptized, they assumed it was them and other Jews like them. But Peter realized, oh, when Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus meant everyone, humankind. All of us will, Jew and Gentile alike. And that's when he kind of half-heartedly or half-apologetically says, listen, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, I'm not going to argue with it. Who am I to stand in God's way? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 19 to 20. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we talked about this at the beginning of the study. To relive the book of Acts, you're going to face persecution from the outside and criticism from the inside. That's okay. And so here the the story, the narrative, is switching to those who are scattered because of the persecution coming from without. The persecution coming from the outside. And that persecution arose over Stephen. We read his story a few chapters back when Stephen was stoned for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen was not an apostle. Stephen was the one of the first board members. He was one of the first deacons of the church. He was appointed to um, wait tables and serve food to the widows and orphans so that the apostles could give themselves to to the word, and to prayer. But he was a man that the Bible says was full of the Holy Spirit. And so the first martyr of the church is not one of the apostles, but just an everyday, ordinary person, a a deacon, a board member, a council member who was full of the Holy Spirit. And so from there, great persecution arose that scattered many of the people as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, when they were scattered, they weren't broadcasting it. Hey, guys, listen, we're here. Persecute us. They were, they were quiet. They were peaceable. That's one of the things that Peter references in his letters when he tells people to be peaceable and to get along and to work with your hands and to, um, to just stay quiet. It's not a Christian virtue to just be passive and, and walked over. Uh, but there are situations where it's wise to keep your mouth shut. And I think that's what Peter was saying here. Especially to those elect exiles of the dispersion. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to people who are running for their life for the faith and so he knows if the church is going to perpetuate the Christians need to stay alive they can't all be killed and so he tells them for a time listen just take it easy don't get too worked up don't draw too much attention to yourself just live peaceably don't go along to get along but just find a way to get through And so, that was a little bit of a tangent. Let's come back now. That, that dispersion or that scattering is happening as early as Acts chapter 11, where, where Christians are fleeing Jerusalem and other areas because they're being persecuted for their faith. And uh, they weren't really making a, a big deal of it. They weren't broadcasting it. First, At the end of verse 19, they were speaking not a word. Uh, verse twenty, but some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who upon coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists and also preached the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to go back in my memory here and remember who are the Hellenists. Well, let me. There is actually a note in my study Bible. Let me read it. As the text note indicates. In contrast to the Jews who were scattered believers, they first spoke the word exclusively to the Hellenists. Okay, these were Greek-speaking Gentiles like Cornelius and his associates down the coast in Caesarea. But the Hellenists were sympathetic to Judaism, like Cornelius was. And so they didn't mind... uh, Speaking the Gospel to the people that were known as the Hellenists because they were already sympathetic towards the Jews, but they kept their, they kept quiet and they spoke to no one who they believed were uh, um, what's that word who were loyal to the empire, loyal to Rome okay, and then what do we have here in the note Antioch becomes the center of evangelism as many different races are converted. And a strong church is formed. This is really cool. The last paragraph of the chapter talks about the gift of prophecy in operation, the spiritual gift of prophecy. But here we're going to read about uh, church planting. So, again, the apostolic gift, not the apostolic office that was held by the 12 and Paul being 13, but the apostolic gift of church planting and church leadership. So let's read what the apostolic gift looks like and how it plays out. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, so the center of Jewish Christianity, Right, So those who converted from Judaism um, as opposed to those who are converting as Gentiles. So it goes from Jerusalem. It reaches the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they send someone to Antioch. So they send an official. They send a leader. Because remember, as of right now, it's just everyday ordinary people and that's okay. That's great. But they want to bring some organization to it. They want to bring some structure to it. And so they send uh, somebody that's familiar to us. They send Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23. And when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And he exhorted them this way because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Paul becomes this um, apostle to the Christians here in Antioch. And when I say apostle, again, I'm talking about someone operating in the apostolic gift. He's bringing structure and leadership to the believers there. He's organizing them. He's telling them uh, to have steadfast purpose. Don't just go do your own thing. Let's have a purpose. Let's be sold out to something here. And it's not long before uh, Barnabas realizes he's going to need an associate pastor. And so he goes looking for one. And look where he goes. He goes down to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found Saul, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year... They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, up until then, they had not been called Christians, but out of Antioch, the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, were called Christians. So, it's pretty amazing. Here we see the apostolic gift of the Holy Spirit in operation. Barnabas goes down. He says, all right, this is great. You're all getting saved. You're all coming to faith. Now let's uh, come together for purpose. Let's come together and do something here. And so he brought some organization. And he got an associate pastor. And they, they, they preached. And they taught. And a number of people were saved. And then... Let's read the final paragraph, and then if there's any questions or comments, we'll take some time for that. Now, in the days, the prophets... Sorry, in these days, uh, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So just again, as a reminder, we saw the the gift of the Holy Spirit, or the gift of the Spirit, the apostolic gift of the Spirit, excuse me, in operation. Now we're going to see... The prophetic gift of the Spirit in operation. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And here we have a scribal note in brackets. This took place in the days of Claudius. So this is uh, something that was prophesied and actually happened. And we're given the date. We're given um, a historical reference point. It happened in the days of Claudius. Verse 29. And so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Claudius ruled the Roman Empire from A.D. 41 to 54. The Nile River flooded in A.D. 45, severely reducing the Egyptian grain harvest on which the Roman Empire depended and a severe famine struck Judea for two years in A.D. 46 to 48. So remember I talked about on Sunday how the New Testament is a legitimate historical document. It's verified, it's authentic, and it accurately describes the events uh, or events in history that are corroborated by other sources. And so the New Testament is a legitimate historical document And here we see an example of its legitimacy. Uh, Dr. Luke writes down this orderly account of what happened here in the first few decades of the church in this book of Acts. And he writes it down, and what he writes down is corroborated by other uh, historical documents, other secular sources, sources that really have no intention of promoting or perpetuating the, um, the narrative that we read in the New Testament, but if it happens, it happens, and they wrote it down. And we know that these things happened. The New Testament tells us they happened, and what's amazing is the New Testament gives us a detail that the, the historians don't give us, which is that this, this particular family was actually prophesied that it was foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the earth, and it took place. It's one thing to say some crazy thing or some wild thing, but it has to happen. If it's from God, then it will happen. And here we see that it certainly did happen. And what's amazing is the response Of the disciples, and here the word disciples not just referring to the 12 apostles, but all the followers of Jesus Christ, all the people that were starting to be called Christians, they determined everyone according to their ability to send relief, whether it was food or money or other supplies, to the brothers living in Judea, which was hardest hit by this famine, And they did so, sending it to the elders, to the leaders of the church there, by their church leaders, Barnabas and Saul. I think I said everything that's there in the handout. Oh yeah, I did put the source in there. A lot of times we refer to the Jewish historian Josephus, but here... Uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, is the one who confirms the fact of the famine. You can look him up too if you're so interested. Look Look up some of his writings and you'll see that a lot of what he wrote affirms, confirms, corroborates that which is written in the New Testament. What's amazing to me is that many people in the world today will so readily believe every other historical document and ascribe to it legitimacy just because it's old. but they won't do the same for the New Testament, which is the most legitimate historical document in existence today. There, we have the most copies of it. Uh, it. We have like the biggest, we have so many, um, yeah, copies, like scribal copies of it. That have been so perfectly preserved, like better preserved than any other historical document. Hmm, interesting. This document itself says that God preserves His Word, and so we have this incredible document. We have all of these uh, well preserved uh, copies, and so many people are just willing to dismiss that and say, "Ah, oh, that's that's nothing. That's just made up, you know, religion." But to me, I mean, it's just incredible evidence that God is interested in truth being preserved, conserved, and then passed on to the next generation. And God is actively involved in preserving his word, for it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent, it will not return void. And God has put a lot of stock, if you will, into this word and into this book, and we always do so well on Wednesday nights to, to read it, to study it, and to allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to us.